1: the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Cheryl Penny. Cheryl is the co-founder and CEO of Dynasty Financial Partners, a back and middle office service provider for large independent RAs that has more than 32 billion on their platform across 47 advisory firms that they support. What's unique about Cheryl though is the way that Dynasty has focused itself purely to be a highly scaled service provider for RIAs while allowing the firms and services to remain completely independent and without any requirement to buy in or tuck in or exchange equity to, for participation. And the particular focus they've taken on providing all that necessary infrastructure and support for large warehouse breakaway teams and sizable RAs with hundreds of millions or more in assets under management. In this episode, we talk in depth about the dynasty model, the four key service lines it offers, including transition support and consulting for breakaway brokers, Its broad investment platform, including an in-house TAMP, as well as a wide range of third-party SMA, UMA, and alternative investment solutions. Its core business of mid-office support services for advisory firms, covering everything from compliance to marketing to technology. And its new Dynasty Capital Strategies line that does direct lending to advisory firms for everything from financing acquisitions, succession plan financing, to offering what they call revenue anticipation notes to allow advisory firm owners to partially monetize the equity of their firms to generate additional capital to reinvest for more growth and acquisitions, and still giving the firms a chance to buy their revenue back if they decide they want to in the future. We also talk about the cost of outsourcing an advisory firm's core operations in middle office, the dynasty model of charging an average of about 15% of revenue to provide its back and middle office services. The typical gross margins that firms that leverage Dynasty's core services have and how they compare to the overhead expense ratios and gross margins of typical advisory firms. And why it's so challenging for advisory firms to maintain their margins as they grow on that path to a billion of AUM and beyond. Because the need for specialized and dedicated roles tends to emerge before the firm can really fully afford to hire full-time employees for each. And be certain to listen to the end, where Cheryl talks about his own perspective on the broader trends in the industry, why he's so upbeat on the RIA model, the key lessons he's learned in how to build and scale a business from zero to 70 employees in 10 years, and how Sheryl maintained his own focus and perseverance when it took more than two and a half years before he was able to take his own first paycheck out of the business for his family. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Cheryl Penny. Welcome, Cheryl Penny, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here, and congratulations on your impressive success of, of the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's It's been a heck of a run now. We're we're over 120 episodes. We're actually going back and looking at our stats. We've had 2 million downloads of the podcast over the past two years, which kind of blows my mind for how many people are, are – listening and listening regularly on an ongoing basis but it it's been a heck of a ride it's it's pretty fun just as a medium to i don't know like i like it. i just get to chit chat about the business i love talking <laughs> about the industry i'll talk shop until the wee hours of the morning and i just get to do that with cool people or throughout the year it's it's been pretty fun running the podcast for a while now
2: i bet like i said i'm excited to be a part of it and i'm also kind of a student of the of the industry if you will so i've certainly listen to a number of of your podcasts and constantly reading about the industry and and trying to apply that on behalf of our business here at Dynasty but also take a lot of those uh, learnings and apply it with our our clients the REAs that we cover around the country so th- this should be a, a fun and exciting uh, conversation so let's let's get after it
1: yeah i'm i'm i've been looking forward to it you know we we've had a come kind of a theme over the past couple of episodes in particular of Talking to both some some people who are in or have built larger advisory firms, as well as folks that have built what I'd I essentially call, you know, support platforms for advisors. And to me, it it just gets at this like this choice, this crossroads that I suppose any business has to some extent of, you know, for any particular thing you're going to do, like, do you, do you want to do that yourself or in your business, or do you want to outsource it? And you know, the rise of platforms like yours, like Dynasty, where, you know, I, I think we used to think about outsourcing in like particular, very finite functions, like, uh you know, I, okay, I need to do the downloads and reconciliations for my portfolio center. Do I want to do that internally? Or am I going to outsource that? Or like, hey, I need someone to do the occasional logo and graphic design for one of my marketing materials. So I want to hire a marketing graphic designer person, or am I just going to outsource that to a freelancer? But, I know what you guys are doing and and some of the platforms that have come up over the past 10 years, to me, take this to a whole other level where suddenly the discussion is like, hey, how do you feel about just outsourcing virtually the entire overhead portion of your business? Like the whole mid and back office goes back out to a platform while you continue to do most of the client-facing activities, which... Uh, to me, uh, well, both ironically and and sort of, I think to the point of your business model, kind of recreates the the captive employee advisor of old. Like the original wirehouse style model was: we do all the back office and mid office stuff. You're the advisor, and your role is just to be seeing the clients and seeing the clients, and that's all you do. Just go do the clients, and we'll do all the back office and infrastructure. But The caveat in that environment is it was also literally the firm's client and you were, well, legally representing them. That's why we put registered representative on our business card. And so now we have sort of this alternative world where instead of saying it's their firm and their clients, and I just fulfill this client facing role while they do the rest of the mid and back office. Now it can be my firm and I own it and I get to control it and set the vision in the future. But... (laughs) I can still basically outsource all of the mid and back office like it was in, in the called the, the the model of old and do all the client-facing stuff. But the locus of control is has shifted that now it's my firm and I'm an independent. And, and I think part of the reason part of the way that lines up so well to me makes a lot of sense then that firms like yours have had such success in in the warehouse breakout model in particular. You know, they go from a supported model where they're client-facing and a firm does the back office to a supportive model where they're client-facing and the firm does the back office, but the whole ownership and control change in the the process, although now I know you're getting broader than just people breaking out of wirehouses. So talk to us a little bit about the dynasty model, like what you guys do and and how you think about this framework or, or position yourselves with advisors.
2: Yeah, no, happy to. And I, th- I think you, you nailed it in, in, in terms of where the business has, has come from uh, in the evolution of the REA space. And I'll touch on that. The real genesis for the original vision for, for Dynasty to provide that turnkey uh, middle office and or integrated platform support for an REA started, I would say, north of 15 years ago, back when I was at Smith Barney. And I'd was was had a number of different roles, but uh, helped build and run the, the private wealth business, their ultra high net worth business. Uh, and I remember leading a presentation to senior management of the company about putting together a business unit that would provide services, product and services to RAAs, because we were watching very closely the asset flows within the business. And Smith Borney at the time ha- had a great franchise and we were winning Consistently versus the other brokerage firms and the private bank, city private bank, which was under the city umbrella as well, was doing uh, just fine also. But you saw an acceleration of assets transferring out to the REA custodians. And there was a little bit of-
1: this was early stage RA, right? Like this is early, early mid
2: 2000s? This is back in, in 04, 05. That's exactly right. But you, and there was enough asset transference that you could see a trend starting to develop. And we we went uh, in and presented a business plan that was probably, uh, not probably, it was just too 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 early, kind of ahead of its time, if you will, but said, why don't we not think about th- this RAA space as perhaps competitors, right? Because ultimately what we're starting to hear, i sp- I've, my career, I spent a lot of time with end clients, with all the advisors that I've been fortunate enough to work with. And I was starting to hear them say things like, I, I think I want to get more of my advice separate from where products are manufactured and sold. Right. So again, not necessarily talking about you know suitability or fiduciary and some of the terms that that we use in the industry, but just simply thinking about advice separate from from where products are manufactured and sold. So you could you could see even back then kind of the writing on the wall in terms of the acceleration of the lifeblood of our industry, which is assets, making that move towards independence. And this is obviously before the financial crisis, and we made that presentation. Uh, and basically, the firm was afraid of cannibalization. Uh, that if we're empowering and providing capital market support, separate managed account, alternative investments, credit, you know, ultimately custody, uh, et cetera, to the REA space, then what's going to stop our advisors from walking across the street from the branches of Smith Barney and starting starting their own REA? And I think, frankly, even 15 years fast forward. A lot of the uh wirehouses and brokerage firms that have considered getting more involved uh in the REA space are still struggling with with, with that same issue. But anyhow, uh, as I started to look more at the REA space, I went out and interviewed 30, 40 uh different large-scale REAs all around the country. And what they said uh is, and many of them had been early stage movers to independence, early stage breakaways, kind of rugged individualists, you know, pioneers of the of the breakaway movement. They would say things like, you know, the custodian does an incredible job providing all the back office services, but I didn't fully appreciate the fact that the skills that make me a great advisor may not be the same skills that now make me a great CEO. And the transition from advisor to CEO has been a challenge because now I have to hire all these people to provide all of the middle office support for my firm, to your earlier point, Michael, that I used to get back at the brokerage firm. And there's all of these you know, different vendors that are out there and I'm juggling 45 different vendor balls. A lot of it doesn't integrate. I'm spending a lot of money on variable costs within the business with, with all of these things. It would be nice if there was a platform out there, an advisor desktop that I could log into and get all the things that I need to run my business. But Without having to sell my business, right? I don't want to join a roll-up, and the roll-up movement had started just started uh, back, you know, uh, f- uh, fifteen years ago or so. And a lot of the, the the only ways that somebody could get kind of supported independence, if you will, is, is to go independent and sell at the most costly time uh, for people who are growing their business rapidly at the point of transition and lose a lot of a lot of the upside. So the light bulb kind of went off and said, look, why don't we start the industry's first truly integrated uh, middle office platform service company that can allow an advisor to be independent but not alone, to be in a community, to have all the resources that they need. And, and if you think about the custodian in the back office, the advisor in the front office, providing the day-to-day client service for for their clients. Why don't uh, we enter into the market and build this firm dynasty to provide all of the things that connect the back office to the front office that can provide synthetic scale? Because if we build out an infrastructure and a technology and a team that can spread the cost and spread the need across multiple uh, RIAs and aggregate You know, 20, 30, 50, ultimately 100 billion dollars of aggregate buying power. It'll drive a lot of scale and efficiencies that will benefit those underlying advisors as well as the clients that that they serve. And and that started the journey to go build dynasties. So I left uh, Citigroup in April of 2008. Sold my Citigroup stock in the low 30s, which was very fortunate uh, because six months later it was 80 cents. And the challenge though was now I'm out raising capital for this new model that no one had ever heard of in the height of the financial crisis. So my wife kept track, who's you know she's the real co-founder of the firm, of how long we went without a paycheck. 2 years, 7 months and 4 days. So we officially launched the business in December of 2010. And it took a little bit of time. Probably the first couple of years was a lot of education of the marketplace that we're not a roll up, we're not taking equity you know, from the the RAAs that are our clients, uh, but we are a service provider. But once the market figured out, you know, what it is that we're doing and the value prop, we were kind of off to the off to the races. And today we have forty seven firms that are on the platform, which we can talk a little more uh, about if you like. But an aggregate uh, today north of thirty two billion of assets uh, that that sit on the platform and a very uh, steady growth projection, a uh, forward growth. Projection of the business that I think in the next, you know, three or four years, you know, should should get us pretty close to the hundred billion dollar number.
1: You made an interesting point there, as as you were getting launched and and con- figuring out how to explain your positioning. That as you said, like you're you're not a roll up, great. So that starts to distinguish with, I guess, what the, at the time would have been firms like United Capital. Now some players like Mercer and Focus. You're not taking equity as at least at the time as high tower was where that was part of the deal that that you were positioned as a service provider, as I was gonna say simply a service provider. Like I don't I don't mean that in the belittling way that maybe it it sounds say simply a service provider, but but just that that there was your position to me had sort of a, a certain simplicity and purity of the relationship of what you were doing, that it was just look, you run your firm, we'll be a service provider for you. We'll handle all that whole slew of middle office functions that you don't necessarily want to do, or hire up for. It's a pain in the butt because you need a third of a person to do this, but you can't hire a third of a person. So you have to either hire a freelancer who's not that focused on your business, or you have to hire one person to do one third of their time in three different jobs, which means you don't get a great person. And you know, we're just here to be that service provider for all that middle office stuff that it's really hard for firms to deal with until they basically get their own billions of dollars of scale.
2: That, that that's exactly right, and look, you know our, our business has has evolved like all businesses do. so we're coming up on our ninth year since since the launch, and the services that our clients needed uh, when when we first launched the business is different than the services that our clients need now because a lot of them are are more mature. Uh, a lot of our clients now are not breakaways. they were already independent firms that wanted to come in and outsource. More of the infrastructure uh, to us, so they can focus more time on on growth and more time taking care of their clients, et cetera. But our 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 service uh, platform now can be fairly easily broken up into four buckets. The first is a consulting business, and if you think about all the various life cycles of a, of an RAA, it you know, to oversimplify it, you know, we provide consulting to someone who's uh, breaking away and launching a firm. So there's a whole set of project management services that have to be done around launching a firm regardless of, of where they've come from. And and Michael, we've at this point, we've done breakaways from basically every firm in in the industry, every type of firm, whether it be wirehouses, banks, IVDs, we've done breakaways from roll-ups, we've done breakaways from r- other RAAs uh, that have scaled up and the partners aren't getting along for whatever reason. We've pretty much, you know, set up a, an, an advisory firm with advisors coming from, from any potential avenue that they could come through in the space. We also, we also, within that.
1: Sorry, I was just going to ask, like, and so in that consulting services, this is just a lot of, like, how do you do this transition, like, legally? What are the entities? What are the structures? What's your employment agreement? What are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? Like, just how would you make the transition? What has to be created on the other side? And then, just the, the project management, I guess, transition support that goes with executing that and not screwing it up since most firms have, most advisors have never actually done that transition until you have to do it the first time. And it's kind of high stakes at the moment.
2: Yeah. With your life's work on the, on the line, that's right. I, I describe it as kind of the staples easy button, you know, around the transition. We're, you know, we're the general contractor helping you build the, the, the new house and we've created our own proprietary project management software, which helps, you know, with, with confidentiality, but also helps keep all aspects of the project uh, organized, and we literally do everything from uh, finding the office, negotiating the, the the lease, helping to secure any type of liquidity that they need around the move, uh, the naming, the branding, the logo, the uh, launch videos, the launch letters, the new account paperwork, the LLC, the partnership agreements, uh, setting up board of directors if that's if that's needed, equity splits, on and on and on, and then. Uh, we live with the advisors through the transition, uh, helping to make sure that all the paperwork is getting done. Uh, oftentimes, with with large clients, uh, we might go out and sit with clients with the advisor to help uh, explain the the, the the new model. So we're we're very very engaged. So it's not like a traditional consulting firm where it's more you know just guidance, but we're providing the guidance and then jumping in the trenches with our client and helping them execute. So. The breakaway piece is a big part of the consulting business. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, advisor to CEO. So a lot of practice management and coaching around how to grow the business, whether it's inorganic, adding other advisors. A lot of advisors we find say they, they want to grow inorganically, but they're not sure how. So you have to get the right equity structure, comp plan uh, in, in in place. They have to have the right marketing materials, PR strategy and we help them design those programs. And then obviously the third life cycle is is succession. And uh, we do quite a bit of succession planning for advisors in the network. But given the average age of an advisor in the Dynasty network right now is late 40s, they're still in rapid growth mode. So a lot of the succession work that we do is tied more to advisors that are coming to us looking to sell their firm into one of the underlying firms within the Dynasty network. So. That's the the consulting piece. The second business uh, is our we call our core business, and you really uh, summed it up nicely earlier. That's running all the middle office. So rather than an REA uh, that might be listening, you know, to the podcast, rather than them having to juggle the forty five different vendor balls, they have an integrated experience with us. So they don't have to go contract with a financial planning software provider or a CRM or worry about a proposal generator or think about where they're going to get compliance support from, or who's going to do their, their billing or their reporting, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're providing all of that as a turnkey middle office service provider for them uh, so they don't have to hire people to do it, and they don't have to worry about negotiating any of those third-party uh, vendor contracts. And we were one of the first you know, kind of players uh, going back nine years ago when we launched a business to really build an advisor desktop with a focus on open APIs. Uh, so we built our chassis to be very flexible, so that as a new best-in-class service provider comes along, I think about it as kind of that high-end iPad for the REA space that allows for us to to trade in new apps as they become available and needed, you know, by the by the client REAs that that we serve. So we we charge percentage of revenue or basis points for all of that turnkey middle office uh, support. It typically ends up being around 15, give give or take, as it blends out. The average firm in our platform is about 600 million, so it's, it does scale down. So you get the benefit of scale as one of our clients grows; they're paying less and less to us on behalf of their their variable expense on a percentage of revenue basis. And then the the last business for us uh, that we launched with was our uh, platform service business and. You know, the, the term you typically hear in this space is a TAMP, turnkey asset management provider. So we have we have built out a TAMP for, uh, to provide SMA, UMA, advisor as portfolio manager, trading uh, functionality and toolkits, alternative investment uh, with access to various feeder funds, capital markets, investment banking, uh, access for advisors that want to make referrals uh, to to investment banks, et cetera. So we actually just hit $15 billion on our TAMP, which I think makes us, you know, one of the top five TAMPs that, that's in the in the REA space. So we've had a lot of success in terms of growing assets with advisors that have a consulting approach that are outsourcing, you know, to professional money managers. And the rest of it, so you think of the 32 billion, the rest of it uh, sits in more APM advisors portfolio manager programs where we provide a lot of streetwide access to research and trading tools and technologies to help those advisors, you know, run scalable and, and efficient portfolios. So those are the three businesses we launched with the consulting, the core business, and platform. But what's happened is our firms have matured. They've needed more access to capital. So a couple of years ago we launched a new capital business, which is now our, our fourth vertical, where we provide loans to our advisor clients. To provide liquidity for principals, uh, to fund succession planning, or to fund M and A, we have quite a sizable loan book already that we've deployed for our community. And then most recently, and I and I did hear that uh, Michael Henley, when he was on your show, was talk talking a little bit about this product. But we launched what we call a revenue participation note, an RPN, uh, where we will buy up to ten percent of the revenue in an advisor's uh, firm which provides some, some very tax advantageous liquidity uh, for those principals if they want to take the money out of the business without having to give up any controls. And that product has, has really been something that's taken off for us, for advisors that say, look, I want to sell my business 10 years down the road, but I want to take a few chips off the table now. So let me get some liquidity, sell a piece of my revenue. And then after five years, we allow for flexibility so that if they change their mind, and say I want to buy it back, they can. So it's only permanent capital for uh, the advisors if they if they choose. They have a one way right on their side to have it be permanent capital. So so anyhow, that that's the business model uh, now with a community uh, of like minded principals. See so a couple hundred advisors across these forty seven firms that love to get together, talk about best practices, collaborate. There's some partnering that goes on with different types of businesses. So to provide this supported independent model, as, as you suggested, I think about it as scaffolding around the firms or, or providing the synthetic scale that they need that allows them to be very competitive at the ultra high end of the market You know, when they're going after a, an ultra high end client.
1: So I, I'm curious just a little bit more around this lending capital business and particularly the revenue participation note. So can can you maybe just No, it's always hard, like talking the math on a podcast in audio. But like, can you walk us through just a little bit of an example of like the mechanics and how this works? I'm just trying to wrap my head around, like, how does the math work, and why do I do this, and what kind of liquidity do I get from it if I'm doing it?
2: Sure. So if you're if you're an RAA and you're generating, you know, three million of, of of advisory fees we are willing to purchase up to ten percent of your revenue, right? So pretty okay, so, math, you'll, so you'll 000. buy you're
1: gonna buy ten you're gonna buy three hundred thousand a year of my top line revenue. I guess technically you can draw it on profits, but you know you're you're just drawing it straight off the top line. That's the deal. So 10% of my revenue goes to you. I keep the other ninety percent.
2: Yeah. And because we we run all the billing and we take a lot of that middle office you know work off the table. Uh, of the REAs, so so we're we're running the billing, and ten, and now we're you know further incentivized if you will to help the firms grow because the better they do in that scenario, obviously the better that we do. But in this case, uh, you know, three hundred thousand, we pay six times the the revenue interest. So three hundred thousand uh, with a six multiple is one point eight, right? So so we're buying ten percent of the revenue in a three million dollar revenue REA for one point eight million which is
1: a huge number by traditional advisor multiples of getting of selling for two times revenue but of course the the reality for most firms we don't really sell for two times revenue we sell for you know if you're a sizable firm maybe 6 to 9 times free cash flow so from your perspective like when you buy the revenue, but it comes off the top, it's it's essentially like ten percent preferential profits interest for you. So you can you can pay a normal multiple of cash flow, which is how you get to six x. That
2: that that's right. And another way to think about it too, Michael, is if you're at the the, the average advisor on our platform, we can talk about gross margins and, and net income and and what we're seeing in the advisory space and some trends and and, and things that might be interesting to to your listeners, but the average net income, if you will, uh, of an advisor firm that sits on our platform is about 30%. And that's after uh, all of their fixed costs and variable costs. And it's after advisor comp, they usually have about 30. Now they own the equity. So most of the advisors are paying that out as a dividend to themselves. But if you think about net income at 30%, and then Dynasty comes in and buys 10% of the revenue, we're buying about a third of the profits right so we never want to turn an entrepreneur into an employee you know if you buy so the majority of the profits for them is still on the table so the positive selection bias right which really works in our favor which is we want to support advisors that want to own the vast majority of their equity because they see their best growth years in front of them right we can come in give them a little bit of liquidity allow them to get some chips off the table now now follow that this case forward that $1.8 million goes into the business and if they decide the, the principal wants to take the money out, they simply put a loan on the books, right? So they borrow, borrow the money from the business, they pay a nominal interest on it, which they're paying to themselves, which would be the equivalent, right? For most, most you know, high net worth advisors are in a tax bracket when you look at state and federal of close to 50% that would be the equivalent if they took an upfront deal from a roll up right on one of these forgivable loan deals or if they took, you know, a deal from another wirehouse of a number that is is twice that 1.8 that's the equivalent of 3.6 in a traditional upfront deal because of of how it's structured from a loan perspective and the tax advantages around it so it's been met with a lot of a lot of enthusiasm we don't take any control uh, it's a straight revenue interest. It's not, you know, tied to to us. You know, having any managerial oversight. Obviously, uh, we're providing compliance support. We're providing uh, outsourced chief financial officer type support, so we make sure that they run a good, clean business. But we're not in any way dictating how the advisor does so.
1: And and so I'm going to imagine in practice, you really get a blend. Some people that do the partial liquidity and just literally keep the money. They've taken some profits off the table. They'll, you know. Grow it further over the next five to ten years, and then have their their final liquidity event at the end. and And I'm presuming some use this as growth capital instead. Like they take the dollars and they plow it right back into the business. Like, hey, one point eight million of of cash. So, like, I'm going to hire the three more people I wanted to hire, and I'm going to do a bunch of these other things that I wanted to do now that I've got the uh, the opportunity to do so.
2: Yes, although they don't – not so much in terms of hiring people. Occasionally it happens, but most – a lot of that middle office service, again, is being outsourced to us. But what more and more people are doing – Oh, good point. (laughs) They they don't need
1: the growth capital. They already have you scaling it for them.
2: But what they're using it for is M&A capital and and really seeing it as as kind of a permanent line where every time they go out, let's say they want to add another $3 million RAA – they know that we'll step in and provide a million eight of additional liquidity because we'll continue to buy ten percent of all of the revenue of all of the ongoing acquisitions, right? So if you, if you if you look at that in addition to a traditional two or three year earnout, which is using in part cash flow from the business that you're acquiring, with Dynasty putting the upfront money, it's pretty easy to see. How you have a nice systematic program to fund MA on a go forward basis for a lot of our clients.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And then, and, and likewise, I guess that's why you, you'll you only do a revenue anticipation note up to 10%. Because if you go too much higher than that, either you're, you're chewing up too much of their profits that you can change their mindset, or just you get to the point where if there was a significant market downturn or a pullback in revenue, like they might. Your actual cash flow might be impinged, which is not good for anybody in this deal.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah, you know, we 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 do not want to even get close to, to buying uh, even half of the profitability uh, in one of the firms because we really want people to continue to be focused on growth.
1: And then and then you mentioned there's this structure down the road where they can, I guess, basically like buy their buy their participation note back, unwind this, say like, hey, use the money, got bigger, feel good, want want my equity back now. So, how does the buyback work on the other end?
2: The, the buyback works at the at the same at the same percentage rate. So, it's ten percent of the of, of your then revenue. Uh, so, if we've grown the revenue together, then obviously we'd be a, benef- a beneficiary. What we don't benefit from though is it's the same multiple. Uh, so, you know, if you're significantly growing your business, the reality is the multiple tends to go up as the businesses get bigger. Uh, you're still you're still buying it back from us at the at the six times multiple. So that's advantageous uh, to the to the entrepreneur that, that that takes the deal with us, as is the fact that it's it's flexible to them that they can choose to do it or not. Most typically what somebody would do is if they, let's say they decide to sell their business down the road and we're having some conversations now where our network has gotten so large and this, this won't surprise you, is that some firms within our network are now as part of their succession plan, planning to sell to other advisors within our community makes sense. They use the same systems and uh, they've gotten to know each other and, you know, built trust over the years. So when that happens, they'll uh, execute the transaction, which we may finance the other side of it, but then they'll close out, they'll buy out our RPN at that point and then transition the business over to the acquiring REA.
1: If they do this, you know, if they, if they do the buyback, so of imagine the irony here, like you know when I give you ten percent for one point eight million, it's like thanks for the pile of cash, and I go and do it for some m a and other stuff, but then when I come back to you, and you know hopefully my firm has grown, so now you know six times my profit interest is two and a half or three million dollars. I don't necessarily have three million dollars of cash sitting around to buy it back because I've been deploying that in my business, so is there I'm sort of imagining I'm really, like is there another layer now where I can I can buy back my revenue participation note but you'll finance that purchase for me or do I have to wait for a final liquidity event so I can actually come to the table with with cash
2: no we can we we have had scenarios where people have asked us to finance uh for for, for that need and I and I will tell you we have a number of clients that do both the loan book personally guaranteed and you know there there are some some benefits in terms of cost, you know, with 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 the loan, but some people just don't want to personally guarantee, especially in some scenarios where there is a group of partners within the firm. Whereas the RPN is tied, you know, straight, straight to the business. And then some people say, look, you know, I I have, you know, whatever the the need is, I got a couple million dollars of liquidity need. Let me take a million dollars in loan and do a million dollars in an RPN and, and and mix and match it. And we're very flexible in that regard
1: interesting so you, the rpn version is solely tied to the business you don't even require a personal guarantee cuz the business cash flows are the collateral when well, i guess you're basically a a 10% loan to value so you presumably got some good security that's correct interesting and and i'm just wondering from the from the business end like is this literally dynasty now keeps like its own Proprietary loan, like loan book of all of these different succession loans and M and A loans and revenue participation notes, like is that actually becoming part of the the business itself? You're essentially a, a portfolio lender to your firms.
2: It 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 is, and we haven't we haven't you know kind of proactively gone out and talked a lot about it uh, in the press because uh, we haven't made the decision to open up. We call it Dynasty Capital Strategies, and it's a subsidiary of the business, which is both the lending uh, business as well as the RPNs. We've only allowed that liquidity in both of those programs to be deployed to our broader clients, right? So somebody hasn't been able to come to us and say, I just want a loan. But the reality is Dynasty actually is one of the largest liquidity providers in the REA space. When you look at the number of loans uh, that we've put on the books over the last five years, and the number of RPNs that we put on the book over the last couple of years, collectively, we've provided a tremendous amount of liquidity. I would tell you that 75%, so, so the majority of the advisors on our platform have used one of those two programs. Some people haven't. They've self-financed or they were already independent when they signed up and haven't needed liquidity yet for, for, for whatever uh, need they might have. But most of, like I said, 75% have used one of One of those programs at at some point in the life cycle of their business
1: fascinating and i mean it's very very
2: friendly capital right i mean it's your service provider that that allows you to to have capital when and if you need it
1: and and you you know you intimately know your firms already because of the the function of what you're doing for them so at, at at worst you have very intimate knowledge to under for underwrite the risks effectively and i guess with things like revenue participation notes when you literally do their fee billing <laughs> you're, you're kind of pretty sure you can get paid because you actually handle the money so you don't have to worry about you know firms trying to run run with their own revenue and not pay on their note because you actually fulfill that function for them as a with the core business so it just it, it aligns very cleanly, right? It's the same reason that custodians can handle those functions.
2: That, that's true. If you, look, if you look at our board of directors and, and people like Harvey Gallup who ran American Express, or Todd Thompson, who was the CFO of of City, and and Bill Donaldson, obviously founded DLJ, the SEC, et cetera. You kind of go down the line. We have run the business in a in a very professional, tight way. Ever since I left my garage, literally, in and la- launching the business. So on the on the credit side, I can tell you our philosophy has been to underwrite the loans and then on the RPN to do the work there in a zero loss type mentality and kind of knock on wood, if you will. We have never had we've never had any issues with any of the clients. It's a it's there's not a middle market commercial bank in America that wouldn't want the credit quality of our advisor network and, and the work that we provide. And that's, that's not lost on us. And that, that's why we're able to provide, you know, pretty cost-effective capital. I mean, you think about a breakaway, this is a new LLC, right? With no revenue history, right? Where an advisor is transferring, you know, their client relationships from a firm that fundamentally believes that they own those client relationships. Yet we're standing behind those people right uh, in that new firm to provide liquidity for their staff and for their family in that time of transition uh, and we've been able to to do so now for 9 years with no losses it's to your point we're very careful we get behind people we believe in we run the books and records we understand the compliance aspect of these businesses and we've been very successful as a result of that
1: so so i'm thinking about dynasties you said are on these four sort of core buckets so consulting services, the, as you put the core business, which is the, the, that all those middle office functions, the platform, which is sort of the invest, I guess, functionally the investment platform. So TAMP offering access to SMAs, UMAs, all of these different strategies that become available. And then the dynasty capital strategies or the the lending business when you need to get liquidity. For your business, tied to your business, supporting succession, supporting acquisitions, et cetera, and so like those are the four buckets: consulting, core, platform, and capital.
2: You 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 nailed it, and and I think something that uh, is worth clarifying as well is that pretty much everyone has hired us at some point to do some type of consulting work, but the consulting, the capital, and the platform business—they're all a la carte. And somebody can choose uh, to use them or not, but everyone who's on the platform is a is a core. You know, to be a client of Dynasty, uh, if you will, that means that at a minimum you're a core service client. We are running the the the, the middle and, and and back office and providing a lot of the scale that we've talked about. And then on top of that, if you need coaching and consulting, if you need various types of capital, or if you need access to an investment platform. Then on an a la carte basis, you can you can opt into that, but everyone is a core client.
1: So now, talk to us. we talked about the 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 services side of the stuff that you do, uh, and across the the four different service lines. So now, bring us back again to the discussion about cost. So you you said we can kind of think as maybe a, at least a rough benchmark. I realize it'll scale up and down inversely with with assets and revenue, but something in the neighborhood of 15% of revenue at, for a firm with 600 million of assets is at least a, a starting point of how I can think about this from a revenue and a P&L perspective.
2: Yeah, that's that. That's right. It's in that range. So if you think about the typical firm, and it varies uh, because fixed costs can, can be different depending upon where the advisor lives and operates the business, obviously. But the typical firm on our platform is running in the low to mid 60s in terms of gross income, and the average being uh, actually about 63 percent right now, meaning if their fixed costs, uh, which oversimplifying as you well know for an REA, typically is their staff in real estate, right? Those are biggest biggest items, r- usually run somewhere around you know 17 and a half to call it 22 and a half type type range. Their variable costs if they're on their own, it, are those 45 different vendor balls that we discussed earlier. Or if they're working with Dynasty, it's just us, right? Because they don't pay an additional fee for reporting or financial planning software, whatever it might be. That's all included in our cost because we've gone out and uh, put in place uh, institutional pricing uh, models with with all of those service providers. And, and so if our cost is in that 15% range, you kind of, you, you add the the, the variable cost and most typically as you also know the custody costs are passed on the execution costs are passed on to the to the end client uh, although we do negotiate on behalf of our entire network favorable uh, custody pricing and, uh, and and structural relationships with with the custodians but assume that that's passed on so the, the fixed costs plus the variable cost is somewhere in that 35 to 37 uh, type type range so that uh, their gross income the advisors that were the the RAs that we're supporting is in that 62 to 65 percent range what most of them then do is they set advisor comp at call it 35 percent and then uh, the rest of it comes out as a as a dividend because most of the firms again larger firms that we support have more than one partner and then the dividends are paid out on a pro rata basis based upon their equity participation. What we've found, we actually did a study recently with uh, John Fury, who I'm I'm sure you're familiar to very respected consultant in the REA space. And we looked at a lot of his larger client relationships, REAs that that he's working with. Uh, We looked at the top advisor studies of some of the REA custodians, there's some asset managers that have put out top advisor studies, and then we looked at advisors that were coming to us that were already independent before they signed up. and we found on average, top RAAs in the space were running at 55 percent versus our average of 62. So it's 700 basis point differential. And when you peel the, the onion back, what you find is while we are saving these REAs a little bit on third-party, vendor cost or what we call resource partners. We don't use the term vendors uh, internally because we feel that you know partnerships are sustainable over a long period of time. And just treating somebody like a commoditized vendor relationship is not. But our resource partner costs, we're able to save a little bit. But where the real delta is, is on cost of uh, employees headcount, where our firms on average have three less people than comparable Six hundred million dollar REAs that are not on our platform. So when you take that delta on cost, let alone the amount of time uh, that it takes to manage those people, the result is seven hundred basis points of higher income. So the advisors are making more money on our platform. But then, if you say the average firm in in our network has a you know eight multiple, let's say in terms of valuation, times seven hundred basis points, it's an increase of almost thirty percent of valuation in the underlying firm and they're growing faster because they have more time to grow. So once RAAs that come in and look to outsource to us really dig in and we do a, a robust PL analysis to see where you know we can we build a gap analysis and say here's where you are, here's where you want to go, here's what it looks like with us. We're finding actually some of our happiest clients because they've already seen the movie of what it's like totally on their own, or the ones that were already independent are now outsourcing more to us to free up their time to grow. Well,
1: and again, I you know we touched on it earlier, but I think it it makes the point so powerfully here. This challenge that a lot of firms get into, and I find this particularly hits as, as you're trying to scale from you know probably three hundred million plus up until you're well over a billion, where you start to need all of these much more specialized roles. You know the 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 path from a couple hundred million up to a billion is the path where. Your generalists start becoming specialists. You know, you, you, you don't have an advisor who's the advisor and the chief investment officer, you get an investment person. You don't have the advisor who also does marketing on the side, you actually get a marketing person. And you know, you don't have one person who does who does all the technology fixes in their spare time between seeing clients, you get a technology person. And so the challenge, I think, for so many firms going through that transition is you end up hiring people to fill these roles, but you don't necessarily really actually need a full-time person's worth of time in some of them. You just need more than the part-time that the the senior advisor has available to give. And so you you end up hiring lots of whole people where you probably would have been fine with partial shares of people, but it's really hard to get high-quality part-time freelancers. But it works a lot better when you're getting essentially va- variable cost fractional services of a large aggregated platform which i think is why you know uh, offerings like dynasty and some others that are in the space work well like it 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 becomes a way to partially lease an expert's time as an in between of just getting a freelancer off the street and hiring a full-time body when you don't necessarily really need a full-time body
2: i, I think that's very well said and uh, you know that's what we're talking about with synthetic scale, absolutely. And I, and I, I think, it, and you probably would remember uh, who, who it was, but one of your, one of your guests on the show, I remember at one point saying because it really it stuck with me, similar to what you're describing there, is they said they realized they didn't make any more money from when they had 300 million under management to a billion, and the and the reason is all you is what you just described is they had to hire more people, take on You know more, you know technology and service providers, and and the cost infrastructure, right? Didn't get to a point for them to where they started to get some leverage back in the model until they got over a billion dollars. And by working with a firm, as you say, like Dynasty, uh, you can get that leverage in the business much sooner.
1: So help me understand, and in maybe a little bit more detail in the core business uh, of like just what does Dynasty actually do for me in the core business? And then, what things do I still need to hire? I mean, as we've said, like your firms are running this 35 to 37% overhead cost before they get to their gross margins. Your cost is about 15% of revenues. Like, there's still a big chunk in the overhead category that I got to deal with myself before you get the rest. So, can you walk through with me a little bit more? Like, just what exactly do I get in core business services from Dynasty? And then, what things are still ultimately on my plate as the advisor, either because it doesn't fit in your model or just it's something I would probably want control over anyways. like how do I carve up the list in a little more detail of who does
2: what? Yeah, the most interesting part of of your question was what you said right at the end, which is what I'm interested in or what I what I want to do, and that varies you know from client to client. Uh, we have some clients literally that say, you know we want you to take everything. And all we want to do is just, you know, is talk to the end client where they hire us uh, as OCIO. So we're doing portfolio construction, asset allocation, manager selection, trading, rebalancing, providing monthly commentary for the advisor, jumping on, you know, quarterly calls, meetings with the client, and then handling all the middle office infrastructure uh, on top of the investments. And then there's other people who say, "I just want you to handle." My middle office operations, and I actually enjoy the money management aspect, and and I want to just take your technology and your trading tools, and I'll manage it myself. But the, the things that are very popular, the things that I would say pretty much every client that we have would say that 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 they really like getting from us would be things like marketing support. You know, to your point, you know, we we have a guy who runs marketing for us, Gordy Abel who was head of industry at Google before we hired him in financial services. Brilliant, brilliant marketer. Uh, so helping, uh, and he has a, a team under him that help advisors think through things that oftentimes they never thought about before, like search optimization, right? Making sure that you're on page one of Google when 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 a client is searching for a financial advisor or understanding uh, digital marketing and how to use uh, various tools like LinkedIn and other social media uh, avenues to get your message out. How to use very simplistic uh, AI technology that can really provide a lot of the front-end interaction to help build a scaled uh, uh, digital marketing program. We run all of those programs, so the advisors we support don't have to, you know, worry about hey, did I go and post on, you know, LinkedIn? today uh, or to follow up on that lead. So we have a team that, that that's running those programs. On the compliance uh, support side, somebody, as you know, within the business, you know, has to ultimately be responsible on the compliance side, but we make it color by numbers. So we have our own software that provides uh, kind of a turnkey solution uh, to help that person who's responsible for compliance, make sure that they're doing all the things that they need to do, including us coming in. On an annual basis and doing mock audits, our general counsel was the was the GC of Lehman Brothers. General counsel Barclays, he ran a you know, SEC and Fender Group for a large law firm, and he has a whole compliance team uh, under him that's providing all of that type of support to really make it color by numbers to help design a robust compliance program so that the 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 advisors don't have to to your point go out and hire a full time GC or a full time ahead uh, of compliance if if they don't need that, given their size and scale. On the operations side, some advisors enjoy trading portfolios, some don't. So we have a, a, a whole tr- uh, trading desk, trade overlay desk here that, that can take advisors' models and, and trade them for them, or uh, can help, as I said, build uh, portfolios that can be smaller retail portfolios or ultra high network proposals, helping with RFPs, designing the allocations, selecting the managers, providing all of that type of investment support. We have specialists in technology, in CRM. We have a whole CRM team that can help you build out uh, a robust Salesforce instance uh, where we've invested millions of dollars, frankly, over the years in uh, developing what we think is a a really uh, creative uh, advisor-focused set uh, of our own proprietary apps and tools inside of Salesforce that that we've fully integrated with uh, the various financial planning apps, whether it's MoneyGuide Pro or eMoney, Plan, et cetera, where you enter in the information and CRM is pre-populating the planning, ties into our proprietary proposal generator. And then we uh, have a wonderful uh, custody relationship uh, with Schwab, Fidelity, Pershing. Uh, we, we we work well with with all three of them. All of their paperwork is fully integrated uh, into this into the system as well. So our desktop that the advisors will log into, single sign on uh, into all the various underlying components that they that they need to, to to run the business. A lot of advisors don't oftentimes fully understand the numbers uh, of their business. Right, you know, we've been talking about fixed cost and variable cost. So so we spend a lot of time educating around some of those KPIs, key performance indicators. Uh, we have our own uh, OCFO uh, toolkit that's also on the desktop that allows uh, the advisors to do business planning and our consultants do that with them each year. And then we track their performance against their goals from the from the year. So my goal is to increase my ROA by two basis points this year and I want to increase my top line by twelve and a half percent this year. And then, which is also very important, they can comp themselves to similar size businesses in our network, right? To see if they're high on fixed and why that is and versus their peers. And then they can reach out and have conversations with their peers and kind of share uh, stories peer to peer as well. So so that outsource chief financial officer program is 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 very popular because it's giving the analytics and 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 tools and resources to uh, the advisors to help them think about how they build more valuable businesses uh, over time. And then, you know, lastly, I would just say, Michael, the uh, whether it's reporting or financial planning toolkits, et cetera. We we have a service desk of professionals who are available, you know, to help build customized uh, reporting programs that can help understand the best ways to optimize various trading tools that we have on the platform, ops people that can troubleshoot issues with uh, custodians uh, as as they may come up. So really trying to create uh, an environment where you have a senior relationship manager and a service team behind that relationship manager that you can call that handles the entire ecosystem for you. So that you don't have to worry about who to call at all of these various firms that make up the the tech stack or the resource platform that you've cobbled together over the years, you now have an integrated partner that can take you know is you know, pretty much all of that off your desk again in an effort to free up your time to to help you grow your business and spend more time with clients.
1: Interesting. And so, all of these pieces. Marketing support from Gordy's team and the compliance support and ops to the extent you don't want to do your trading and tech specialists and and access to all the various toolkits like all of that is bundled under the core business for which I pay my percentage of revenue fee that scales to my assets like that's sort of like that's an all in one bundled thing and it's just it's up to me. Whether I use every single part or I use a little bit more, I use a little bit less, my mileage may vary depending on how I want to leverage the
2: platform. That's that's correct. And it also includes access to to our practice management team, all of our network events. We have an annual investment forum, which we just wrapped up last week down in Dallas. We have an annual advisor summit. Uh, We do regional events. We do client events. We have Kentucky Derby coming up as well as the the players uh, championship uh, on the PGA Tour where we use our scale and size to go out and secure a venue that the advisors on our platform can then bring their clients to. And it's it's really, you know, with the focus that, that you were well articulated earlier, you may not, you know, if you're a $500 million REA, you, you know, it, it's it's too expensive. It's cost prohibitive to go line up, you know, tickets at the Kentucky Derby to get in a suite. But because the dynasty community has multiple advisors that would like to do that, for a handful of their best clients we're able to go out and do that and put that experience together for our community. So you're you're getting the big firm advantages while, you know, being able to to run your half billion dollar RIA wherever you might be located across the country.
1: And so then in terms of the other service lines, so I'm guessing the I mean the capital business just you know, you, you make money as a lender that, you know, that's the that old boring banking model where you take deposits and lend money and make money on the spread. Plat, the investment platform offering. I'm just presuming like you've got a TAMP offering. It's got its own natural cost that's associated with it because you got to generate some revenue to to run a TAMP. And so advisors just pay the TAMP fee if they're using the TAMP, not unlike any other investment offering that's out there.
2: That's correct. Yep. So there's a platform fee, you know, for a couple basis points for the integrated trading tools, which includes all of the research uh, support uh, that you know we have 10 different research providers that advisors all have access to that that integrates you know into into the advisor uh, portal and then there's platform fees to your point on SMAs or, or UMAs for the feeder funds if they want to use the the alt if they want to leverage you know our insurance platform or our lending platform we have a whole host of different banks uh, that we partner with that that we have lending uh, team members that can help shop out more esoteric, large, you know, non-purpose type structured loans, and then capital markets. Occasionally, we have clients that you know want to shop a transaction, a large single concentrated stock position, hedging, monetization, restricted stock position. Uh, we've had uh, with some, you know, with Lyft obviously went public recently, and Uber's around the corner. We've had an uptick in interest from clients. Uh, Spacex is a name that that is interesting to us right now, where clients are coming to us and they want access to to those names on a pre iPO basis. so our our desk goes out and and helps make make that available to to our network. so it's it's really, and one of the things i I learned early on is not to go out and build a lot of capability that I think our clients will want and need. We've been, I think over the last five years at least, you know fairly, smart about putting together an advisory board made up of our clients to tell us what it is that they need as their businesses evolve. So we've expanded those services as we've known that we have demand for it within the network. So talk
1: to me about just typical size of firms. I mean, I'm I'm presuming for just the sheer depth of the stuff that you do when you're charging a percentage of revenue, like there's, there's some minimum size that a firm has to be at just for it to be economical for you to, to serve them and give them a slice of all these core services that you're offering. So is, the, is there a, a minimum or a low end of how big does a firm realistically have to be to be a good dynasty partner?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, it's, it's in some ways it, it's more art than, than science because, you know, we, depending on, you know, where the, the advisor's located. If, if somebody's in a, in a, in a market where, you know, they've got 250 million in assets and they really want to focus on growing. And and we really see them as great community members and they really fit the culture of our community. And we can have a lot of fun helping them grow both organically and perhaps inorganically. That's an exciting client. I mean, in in some ways, you know, Michael, we'd rather have that $250 million client today that wants to grow to a billion dollars over time by maybe adding an advisor every year or two and and growing, you know, fairly aggressively organically, versus someone who comes in with five hundred million today but has no interest in growing. Uh, you know, it's it's just it's a lot more fun for us to kind of get 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 behind someone who wants to grow an enterprise. But for us, in in general, it kind of starts at two hundred and fifty million to be a beachhead, if you will. Uh, I think of us as that Intel sticker that's powering the brand. So, for us to add a new brand uh to the platform or a new logo on our wall that we have here, they tend to be uh two fifty or above, but you know we have a lot of hundred million dollar you know wonderful books of business uh advisors that call and say, "Hey, look, I want all the benefits of independence, but maybe I don't want to run my my own business. Can you introduce me to one of the other r a a s on your platform and maybe i can I can join them and you know we we will do this year more of those types of deals than we will do even of the of the beachheads we'll probably we'll probably add we're gonna have a good year we have a lot of deals signed Uh, you're gonna see us active in the in the press in the in the coming months i bet we'll flow north of 10 billion of net new money this year which is obviously a big number and i wouldn't mention it on the podcast if i didn't feel pretty confident in it but it'll be a combination of a dozen uh to you know call it 12 to 14 new RAAs, but we'll probably do somewhere between 15 to 20 M&A transactions uh, that will uh, also add you know, anywhere from 100, couple hundred. Uh, we've done some, you know, five, six, we've done a billion dollar M&A transaction uh, last year. Uh, so they, they tend to get larger and it's really about uh, the personality of the advisor, where they are in their life cycle. And some now would just prefer to join one of our larger scale, well-run RAAs versus versus doing their own thing. So a bit of a longer answer there to say that we don't have a minimum, if you will. It's really, if you're coming in at 250, you really want to grow. We can have some fun working together. That That's a pretty good client for us.
1: And then from a practical perspective, is there a typical maximum? Hey, if someone's got $20 billion and they want to come on the platform, I'm sure you're happy to have that conversation. But, but I'm just assuming like, realistically, at some point, the firm is just actually large enough it has managed to build out enough of its own infrastructure it's got its economies of scale off of staffing they no longer have to run you know three more people than what they would run with you because they can they've grown into that size you know at some number of of billions or management or maybe just at a certain level of revenue when they're at 15 or 20 million dollars of revenue it, like is there some threshold that you're finding on the on the upper end where it's just less likely that the firms are going to work with the dynasty style platform, and more likely that either they want to, or they just already have built their own version of that infrastructure.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and and so I'm a fellow at the Aspen Institute, and you know we we do a lot of uh, study on entrepreneurship and a lot of business model uh, analysis. And what's interesting, you know, I think of I think of companies like Apple, right, and, and you know what, eight hundred. Billion dollar, you know, market cap, you know, give or take on, on any given day, you, you, they have four products, and that's it, right? You talk about incredible focus. And you could put their their products on you know one little table that you might have in in front of you, and ninety percent of what goes into those products that they're laser focused on is outsourced, right? They don't they don't build really any of the components. I mean, their focus is on on brand uh, and design and you know you think of uber that i mentioned earlier in terms of you know their ipo that that that's coming i mean 95% of of everything they do as you well know is is outsourced right so i find it it really comes down to as much of personality as anything else in terms of what is it you know do i want to spend a lot of my time working in my business or do i want to spend more time working on my business and what are the things that it's truly really differentiated for me, my business, my clients, and let me hone in on those things that I'm really good, that do provide, that differentiate experience, the things that I can get paid for, that can put margin in my business, and then get rid of everything else, outsource everything else. So, look, I mean, we have scenarios where Summit Trail is a wonderful client. We launched them less than four years ago. Uh, I think they launched with just under two billion. They're already at six billion. And we're providing, you know, the the middle office uh, support that we've talked about for them, and and they're continuing to open offices around. I mean, they're a national RIA uh, and growing very, very rapidly, organically, uh, and doing a great job by adding other like minded advisors. I think of Geller Family Office here in in New York, multi billion, you know, not north of four billion dollar RIA, been independent a long time, and certainly have resources that that they could go hire more people and spend more money on technology and uh, and try to you know, put together platform components on their own. Uh, but they just found it's a better use of, of their time uh, and resources to hire us to come in and, and do that. So we do have some very large RAAs. We have a, a separate unit called Dynasty's Enterprise Group that focuses on that couple billion dollar plus RAA uh, because there are some, some nuances and uh, and you you know multi city you know multi advisor type firms and having very specific uh, technology and programs uh, that are needed for that type of client segmentation so we have a separate group versus the group that that focuses on that traditional 5-600 million dollar raa which is you know really uh, to your earlier point kind of our our bread and butter client
1: you know, you, you make such a powerful point to emphasize that you know Apple at the end of the day ba- basically only makes four products and about 90 percent of the production of those is outsourced that you know you can have an extraordinarily large company where you just get hyper focused at the thing that you create the most unique value on and and outsource and let go of the rest but you know, you you do I think make an interesting point as well that there there's sort of a a personality fit. There's a psychographics fit here. Like you're, it sounds like your ideal advisor really just is. It, it's that advisor that genuinely wants to be an entrepreneur and grow a substantial enterprise, and is simply making a business decision. Like I don't need to scale my middle office to build a successful firm. I'm going to outsource <laughs> scaling my middle office to Dynasty, who can power this portion. And then I'm going to go spend my time focusing on the parts of my business where we actually add value, where we do our unique layer that can't be outsourced. And we'll hold on to that, but we'll let go of the rest the same way that Apple does.
2: Absolutely. Look, managing your middle office is not going to typically make you more money as an advisor. It's not going to add enterprise value to the business. And it's, it's typically not going to be something that differentiates that client experience. So why spend a disproportionate amount of my time on those middle and back office things that don't accomplish those core objectives that most every advisor that i ever worked with in my career is focused on?
1: So talk to us a little bit about where, like, where the growth is coming from for Dynasty and, and where you're getting traction. You, know, you, you, you mentioned early on that when you started, it was mostly breakaways. Sort of giggling as you said, it's like so basically, Smith Barney was right to be afraid of the cannibalization because you launched Dynasty and started cannibalizing warehouses. Now you said you're much more, you're finding much more traction with independent RIAs. So, like, who's who's coming to the table these days? Where do they come? Like, where are these advisors who are focused on building enterprise and scaling and want to outsource the scaling of the middle office because that's not where they build their value? Like, who are those advisors? Where are they coming from? Like, where are you finding these opportunities?
2: Yeah, look, I, I would say all roads lead to REA. I mean, all roads are leading to the REA space. And uh, and if you look at asset managers, and I spent a lot of time with the people who run some of the largest asset managers in the world. Uh, and, and the reason they want to hang out with me is they're trying to fine tune their RAA strategy. Uh, you look at the investment and growth of the custodians. You look at all of you know, the new technology firms that are coming online to support RAAs. All the capital that's flooding in. I mean, you have sovereign funds now. You have strategics. You have asset managers. You have private equity firms. I mean, it it there, it seems like there's 20 buyers out there for every seller uh, right now in the space. I mean, it's a, a bit frothy, frankly. But it's an exciting time uh, to be the owner and operator of a a well-run RAA. So the result of that is, to answer your question, the opportunity seems to be coming from, from everywhere for us. And what we have to do is analyze, as I tell my team, we have to look at what's the grief, the gross for us, meaning, you know, can we make a fair wage? And it's someone that we're going to be proud to be. In business with to make sure we can be selective. And that's the benefit of our capital structure that dynasty is owned by the by all the individuals who work here. And by the way, they all wrote a check to to buy equity as well as options programs that, that we have and our investors. So I do not have a private equity gun to my head, right? So we're building the business while it's it's built up fairly rapidly, it has been methodic uh, in, in how we've we built the business out, uh, so we're now at a point where we're onboarding. Yes, those very large breakaways, and there's no one that's done more billion dollar breakaways in the industry than than we have, uh, and that's great. We like that business. We're seeing a lot of breakaways uh, into RAAs, uh, as I talked about earlier. Uh, we're now seeing more uh, IBD teams, so the independent broker dealer channel, where using. Their language, they're coming to us and saying, "I feel like I've outgrown my my, my current chassis, uh, which is more retail in, in nature. I think I want to to maybe make a move to a more traditional RAA custodian. I want to upgrade some of my technology. I want to own uh, equity uh, in a standalone RAA. Maybe I want some liquidity uh, even around that." So we're seeing more and more IBD teams that are making and, and almost it's leading and some of them are coming over and I'm oversimplifying this because I think your listeners would understand this term but they want to almost migrate the OSj model into the REA space so you're seeing you're seeing leaders of groups of advisors whether it's a branch manager at a wirehouse or an OSJ manager in the IBD space now looking to go uh, to the REA space but they want uh, supported infrastructure uh, and capability you know, from a firm like Dynasty, so they don't have to go out and spend aggressively through their capital to get in the ready position to be able to scale and add more advisors. And I think you're going to see, you're going to see, Michael, more of these multi-team moves, right? So before, you know, you may have you know larger individual advisors, but I think you're going to start to see you know, producing branch managers, several advisors, multiple teams, maybe even from multiple firms, all making the move to get to scale, create a splash, really looking to build regional, uh, strong RA brands, which is, you know, why, you know, I know you're out there doing a great job on the speaking circuit. And we run into each other out there from time to time. And what I'm Telling advisors, look, five years ago, if you were five hundred million dollar RIA and you're out there telling the fiduciary story and the independent story, you know you were feeling pretty good. Five years from now, that's not going to be a differentiator because firms like Dynasty, we're literally launching billion dollar new entrants into the space monthly, right? So, so they're going to have the same same story. They're going to have scaled access to technology. Uh, systems, product, services. Uh, so the big competitors that that you're going to have to worry about, you know, as a couple hundred million dollar RIA, you know, going forward, it's not going to be kind of shooting the the fish in the barrel versus a, a Merrill Lynch or a Morgan Stanley or UBS because it's such a different model. You're going to have to figure out how do I tell my story uh, against some of these large scale, professionally run, well capitalized RIA's. And I don't think a lot of you know the the smaller REA uh, principals out there really thought that through, and and what the ramifications could be for them going forward.
1: So, how do you look at other players now that are trying to enter into this REA space as well? You know, I was saying the earlier comments of you know Smith Barney didn't want to pull the trigger on this because they were afraid of cannibalization. You know, now we've seen the announcements like. UBS working on an RA services platform, Wells Fargo launching one with, uh, I think, a pilot advisor or two. So, do, like, do you see this realm where wirehouses now are, you know, taking the advice they didn't want to hear from you ten years ago, but now they're actually going to try to do it and, I guess, fight back or at least retain their existing advisors or try to attract advisors in and say, you know, oh, you think Dynasty's big? Like, we're going to do it with 10x or 50x the scale because they're Mega wirehouses, like, do you view that as a shift in the landscape, or, uh, or do you consider this to be something else?
2: Yeah, I, you know, about six months ago, I kind of coined, coined this 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 phrase, captive independence, uh, and it was a bit tongue in cheek when when I did it, but it is my way of kind of describing, you know, the the banks and the warehouses now kind of finding religion, if you will, around the rea space, and it's it's gotten, I guess I would say, it's gotten annoying enough <laughs> for them. They've lost enough advisors. They've lost, and the press doesn't talk about uh, what I also described the breakaway client movement. The press talks about the breakaway advisor movement, but the reality is if you look at the asset migration of the large scale RAA custodians, the reality is 70 to 80% of any new asset flows in any given year is same store sales, right? It's the RAAs that are on their platform that are growing disproportionately versus their warehouse uh, counterparts. And then the you, you add in the new source sales that doesn't really happen at the wires, that is happening at the REA. And it's easy to see that eventually, because these wirehouses are not, you know, run by people who are, are not bright. I mean they 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 get what's going on. And they're looking at it and saying, look, at the end of the day, what they really care about is product distribution. And there there's only so much product I can sell, even if I have 15 16 18,000 internal advisors wouldn't it be nice if i could you know in a rising rate environment ultimately be a custodian for RIAs right? and and have have the cash there and leverage uh, non compensatory revenue items like you know margin lending and things that you don't pay advisors on right i mean the custodial economics that we all understand so you see firms like Goldman Sachs launching product programs and, and having coverage team and institutional service uh, groups providing services uh, into REAs. I expect that you'll ultimately see more of the banks, more of the wirehouses, and they'll do it, Michael, for two reasons. One is defense, which is a little bit of what you alluded to, which is if I'm going to lose this advisor anyhow, right, then maybe I can move them to captive independence, right? pseudo and give them a little more autonomy, Right? someone who wants full independence wouldn't accept it they'll jump over that and they'll go out and do their own thing right but maybe I'll capture some of them and I'll try to scare people into going in, in that direction versus having the courage to go ahead and do their own thing and then the offensive side is I can where I make most of my money anyhow because I'm low I'm low teens on the margin side on the advisory you know for most of these firms, but I'm high 20s in margin on my product manufacturing. So if I can sell more high margin stuff to more people, right, and I can see my private client division just as my largest client, but then I can have other clients, I I can go to Dynasty and provide access to capital markets and lending and services to Dynasty at the Holdco level to then make available to all of their underlying firms, right, and then I can go out and, and cut partnerships with REA custodians, et cetera, to provide more service to them. That's where the industry is going. So when I say all roads are leading to REAs, that means the banks, the wires, the asset managers, the product manufacturers. everyone is thinking about, if I'm going to play wealth management, how do I get a strong foothold and have a long-term strategy around what's happening in the REA space here domestically? Uh, so it's an exciting time if you if you're in the space if you're if you're and, and you can create time to take a half step back and think about what does that mean to me, whether I'm an REA uh, principal, whether I'm a technology service provider or an asset manager right that's trying to trying to distribute you know into the advisory space, whether I'm a custodian right? And what that means to me in terms of some of these other scaled players potentially entering uh, into the space. What does it mean to a service provider like us? I mean, everyone should be thinking about that dynamic because it's coming and it's going to come quick.
1: So take us back for a moment to like the background that took you down this path. Like were you someone that from early on had this vision that I I want to be an entrepreneurial builder and Build a business, I guess, in, in financial services or in or in or in anything. Like, was this always the path that you saw yourself on for building a business?
2: Yes, uh, although you know, if, if if we go back to my my roots in in, in Maine, I had kind of a non traditional uh, route to get into to finance. I was raised in the easternmost point in the U.S., a little fishing village called Eastport, raised by my step granddad, and grew up kind of on the poor side of the tracks. Uh, actually, homeless uh, even even for a couple of years. Uh, as you know, went to Bates, which I know is your alma mater as well. Great great school in Lewiston, Maine. The Bobcats. Yeah the
1: uh, the the like the random history trivia is uh, Cheryl and I actually went to college together and overlapped three out of four years at at Bates with not really knowing each other. Like I kind of have a vague memory of overlapping, but I played squash, you played baseball. We were in dorms basically on the opposite sides of the campus from each other. So didn't didn't have too much overlap at the time. Only found out like 10 years later, crossing paths in the industry. Like, wait, you went to Bates? I went to Bates. When did you go to Bates? That's when I went to Bates. Like, oh, okay, small world. How about that?
2: Well, you were with the cool kids, right? So that's why we, we didn't hang out. So, but but oh, I, God, I, no, I me, but. Made, made my way down from Lewiston to, to to New York and kind of worked my way up at Smith but but and, and was given a lot of responsibility uh, early on in, in my career, and, and really appreciate you know, a lot of the mentors uh, that I had there, and was a great place to grow up in, in the business. But the 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 most fun that I had was living in the field uh, with all the great advisors of the firm, who would frequently put me in front of their top clients, and we would run these meetings we call them VIP meetings, where we'd bring you know hundred million five hundred billion dollar clients in and introduce them to Sandy Weil and the senior executives in the firm and the different product heads in the investment bank, et cetera. And I remember after a few hundred of those, asking myself, what to all these people, I've had this incredible experience of meeting all these interesting people. What do they all have in common? And it really struck me that they all took a calculated risk. They bet on themselves and they all had significant success through equity, right? And and it's very difficult to make true significant wealth uh, in this country as a W-2 earner. And I said, you know what? When my pitch failed <laughs> fifteen years ago uh, for us to power the early uh, REA movement, I said, you know what? This is this is probably my opportunity to sit on the other side of the table to go be an entrepreneur to build a service infrastructure uh, that helps power this this whole independent movement. And 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 off I went. And as we said earlier, obviously no one could have predicted that from a timing perspective. While it was challenging to leave in the early part of 08, and then to raise capital in the height of the financial crisis. Flip side of that was all of those large brands obviously went from being in, in a number of cases an asset to a liability uh, on the business card of advisors, which once I got up and running, uh, allowed us to more quickly grow the business by bringing advisors on that, that wanted a, a more independent story.
1: As you started down that journey, like what's what's been the biggest surprise to you about this, this- entrepreneur path of trying to build your own business.
2: Well, I I I've been a big believer in mentorship uh, and I have a lot of uh, mentors uh, and mentorship by committee uh, is always an approach that that I've taken and and all you know, not just in our industry but all different types of of mentors and I I have been surprised. I tell this to people all the time. Uh, even though people told me it's going to be really really hard to get off the ground. To raise the capital in a way that you still have control that you're not giving away all the firm uh, to to the investors, asking your friends and you know we mentioned Bates, I have five of my old classmates that are here and I was you know captain of the baseball team my senior year. I have a person who was a a junior a sophomore and a freshman, so three of my old teammates that are here and I'll tell you a number of them came in and worked for free for a year a year and a half. One guy slept on my couch for a year, like the, you know, working out of an apartment and Starbucks, you know, in, in Manhattan and in my garage in Saratoga Spring. I mean, the, the classic kind of entrepreneurial uh, trials and tribulation and kind of living Shark Tank in real time, meeting with a hundred different investors to try to, you know, again, raise capital in a difficult part of the, Capital market cycle, to say the least.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's hard at any time. Never mind in the middle of the financial crisis when everybody's just trying to make sure they're solvent.
2: Yeah. So you and, and look, you want to you, you want to take the island, burn the boats, right? So my my wife and I would would chuckle that the boats are long gone and and, and 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 we're all in now. And so we and then you get the then you get the funding, you get the business up and running, uh, and you feel like you have you know a half a second to celebrate. And then you realize it's even more difficult <laughs> at that point to now start executing against the business plan. So I, I, And so that journey has been harder. It's like a lot of things in life until you fully, you know, it's like being a, a parent, right? I mean, you can intuitively, you can say, you know, this is what it must be like to have a child. But until you're a parent, you can't fully appreciate it or to have empathy with it. If you've never been an entrepreneur and you've never made that leap and that jump, it's tough to describe to someone all the emotions and everything that goes with it. But look, most, all of your listeners understand that because they're, and that's frankly, I think today, one of our very biggest Michael competitive advantages as a service provider to REAs is, is that we are entrepreneurs servicing other entrepreneurs, right? We're not some large company that's trying to sell something to an RAA and saying, trust me you know, or break away and saying, trust me, you'll be fine. We're saying, you know what I've been there and stayed overnight, yeah, <laughs> I've seen the movie, I starred in the movie, I wrote the script i mean i've i I've done it and, and and I get it and i and and I sit you know just earlier this this week we're getting ready to to launch a business and I sat uh in the living room with the team and all their spouses uh, in their home for five hours and just talked about all the emotions're about to go through and make sure they all understood how it's gonna work and because you know, the, the over communicating at home as an entrepreneur and making sure that your family understands. And I say, look, you know, your spouses are going to be working really hard for the next six months, right? This is this is a process, you know, through this transition, but here's the benefit, you know, here's what's coming out on the other side of it. And uh, so it, it we get to live our American dream by empowering others to live theirs. Uh, and it's incredible to be able to experience it and and to see all the jobs that, that are being created and the enterprise value that's getting created, you know, from all these firms that we're helping to play our little role. And like, like I said, be the Intel, you know, sticker of to help, you know, power their independence. It, it's been an, a, an incredible journey over the, the last 10 years.
1: and I, I love the point that you made there that you can't over-communicate enough at home about getting Buy-in from the family about this as well. I mean, never mind. Like, if you're going to raise capital, getting your investors on board and and getting your employees and team on board, particularly the ones who are taking this blind leap risk with you. But you know that that dynamic that look if you're an entrepreneur, it's really hard for your emotional roller coaster in and at the business to not come home with you at least to some extent, particularly early on. And you know just that importance of having family buy in and having family support and just preparing them that you may need a little bit of support while you go through the coming roller coaster is, is to me a a really big deal that I, I don't think it's talked about enough in the industry as as people are looking getting started of of how much that family support system really matters and and likewise how how much damage you can do to your relationship with your spouse and family if they don't they don't know what's coming and and it makes the situation even more stressful than it already
2: is yeah no I, I i agree with that It's you know it's it's getting a little bit easier i wouldn't say a lot but uh you know look we've 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 done this now you know well north of 50 times so we've kind of i wouldn't say you, you've never seen everything but you've seen a lot uh but you know i, I think about we just an incredible uh roster of of of, of clients and we're so appreciative that they've entrusted their life's work. And that's how we see it. I mean, you, somebody, you know, who, you, a lot of the you know, entrepreneurs that we support, they're 100% levered in terms of their uh, personal network to, to the business that that they have built. And the fact that they would trust us to, to help them protect it, grow it. I mean, it, we see the world through, through that lens. And if our next, you know, transition or, 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 you know, setup of a business doesn't go well, then those other, you know, 50 don't don't matter and that that's the focus we have and the fact that all of our original clients after all this time we we still have them and you know we're able to help them be be successful and they've been so loyal and committed to us when it was just a concept right i mean it was trust us jump out this window the hand shoot's going to go up and it's going to open and i got you uh it's you know it's a little easier now for somebody coming in because we've done it so much. But I, I think back to those, those first few clients and how incredible and brave and trusting that, that they were and just will forever be indebted for them to believe in us when they did.
1: So how has the role changed for you over the years?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, it's, we definitely uh, have professionalized the business and I tell a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, the most difficult part of, of leadership uh, unless you're a jerk <laughs> uh, and most people are not is having tough conversations with with your team members and, and especially those that you've known for a long time and and realizing that if you really want to build a big business you want to build a substantial sustained legacy type business uh, you have to uh, be willing over time to have those tough conversations and the people that get you here may not be the ones that get you there we've had we have had to upgrade Talent over time, we recently announced uh, moving our headquarters uh, to Florida, which I think will put us in a position to really uh, scale the business you know in, in the future and continue to put more margin in the business and allow us to make more investments in people and technology to take uh, better better care of our clients but you know in the early early days you know ed Ed Swenson, who's one of the original co-founders of the business ed and I've worked together essentially our entire career we, he also went to Bates although uh, he didn't play baseball he captained the rugby team at Bates and we were roommates uh back uh, back at Bates but ed has very complementary uh skill sets to mine but early on we would joke that ed wore, you know i i was out there driving sales but ed wore the hat of of every other uh role and responsibility in the firm that somebody would would call up and you'd press you know 1 through 5 but no matter what number you pressed you got ed
1: yeah <laughs> it was all going to the same person yeah.
2: And uh-huh. uh, so, yeah, early on, you do what you I mean. You know this, right? You, you, you have to you have to do everything. And over time, as we've grown, you know, we now have professional CFO. We have a general counsel. We have, you know, professional uh, operations, et cetera. So I spend uh, a lot of time with clients. Uh, that's one of the things that I enjoy most. Uh, and I feel like it's really dangerous for leaders to not have proximity and to get out there and, and listen to clients. Who I love our model uh, is the alignment in that if our clients don't do a, a good job for their underlying client, they get fired. Well, it's the same with us, where we have to stand and deliver every day, uh, or we get fired. And 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 I love that alignment of interest. It's very very pure, and I think differentiated and frankly, the way the the industry uh, should be. And by getting out and talking. To advisors and their clients. I meet with probably hundreds of end clients every year uh, with our advisors and I hear from them what they like uh, about our technology and product uh, set uh, that we're providing. Uh, I find that to be very useful. At the high end of the market, I find, and I don't see this changing anytime soon, the really large teams, at the end of the day, they're not going to make a significant buying decision without having a relationship with the CEO. Uh, so while our brand now stands on its own and we have a great business development team, I still have to get out, uh, and see a lot of the the teams at the moment of decision-making to help them and us assess, uh, if it's a right fit, you know, and we're big enough now that one of the things that, you know, I mentioned my background and kind of how I grew up, I, I think that, you know, f- the financial health, uh, of this country, uh, is not in a good place, whether you look at, governments at the federal or, or state level, pension funds, you know, various un, underfunded uh, commitments in, in that regard. You look at the fact that north of 70% of Americans can't put their hand on $500 uh, in an emergency situation. So the financial health uh, is, uh, uh, is very sick right now, kind of across the board. Uh, and you know, as a kind of a proud patriot, uh, if you will, I think that you know quality financial advice, and I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart, and 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 what your whole uh, community and ecosystem is 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 focused on as well. But we have to make the system work for more people. And now that I have you know a bit a, a big our, my microphone right is 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 growing uh, with our business here and my work at the Aspen Institute, and uh, it's something that I think about kind of the. The, the, the next phase of, of my life I think is, uh, is is trying to give back and encourage and persuade and, and be kind of a, a cheerleader uh, for uh, independent financial advice to be delivered in a way that makes a positive uh, impact on improving the financial health and wellness of various constituents across the country and i I hope that that all of you know your listeners that that have the the ability to give more and do more uh, and to help. Not just kind of leave the ladder down, but collectively working together build an escalator that more people can come up and participate. Uh, it's something that uh, I think is, uh, if not addressed, and and if not us, then who? If we don't focus on it, it's going to become a big problem for for this country going forward.
1: So, what was the low point for you?
2: I would say that uh, I was probably you know two and a half years in. I was an okay income earner, uh, but I was young. I, mean, I was, I was thirty-two years old when I launched this business, so I hadn't had, and and again, homeless as a kid, uh, self-funded uh, my way through Bates, working odd jobs, uh, paying back those student loans. Uh, we had a little bit of a cushion, but but not an enormous cushion. And after going, you know, two years, seven months, and four days, as my wife kept track without a paycheck, we you know we we were we were running on fumes and. Uh, it was it was time to launch the business, and I remember there was a handful there were a handful of investors, uh, and I'm sure again there's a number of entrepreneurs listening to to this podcast that can relate who said, "Okay, I'm in, and we're getting ready to close the round and uh, and then the next day the the capital didn't show up uh, and that that is you know when when you're so close and all the pressure because all your best friends are sleeping on your couch and believing in you and working for free. And you've got young kids at home, and your wife's believing in you, and 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 you know, and supporting you, and everyone's all in. And then you know, it's another. It's it feels like okay, just two more weeks, two more weeks. And uh, I would say that's probably the the the, the lowest point in and then and staying having that conviction that it's what I wanted to do, and you know, getting offered jobs along the way and passing on significant opportunities. Uh, because you know, I, I saw this this great interview once with you know with Steve Jobs and some of the clips uh, you know from it were used in in their great ad campaign where you know the the great line about the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world the ones that actually do. but if you listen to the rest of that interview he talks about how they're crazy because any any sane and rational person who understood the odds and, and looked at what it's going to take to get there wouldn't do it <laughs> right so I look back and you know there was never, any significant just in in my mind i believed that i would be here i'd have north of 30 billion and have 50 of the greatest rea clients and you know have you know created significant wealth for my my partners that are here and i just believed that that we were going to do it although the odds of us you know sitting here and having this conversation if you looked at it i mean they're north of 10 million to 1 i, I should have been you know playing playing the lottery right so and I think if you talk to a lot of you know successful entrepreneurs, you know they they kind of say the the same thing, right? it's it's they're they're gonna grind it out. you know they're gonna put their head down. they're just gonna outwork everyone and do what it takes to be to be successful and uh, and and not all the time. I mean, I'm not naive to think that I'm not also very lucky uh, and fortunate that the investors came in when they did, and my partner Todd Thompson helped put our board together and Ed hung in there long enough, you know, a year and a half without a paycheck and and didn't leave me. And our first clients believed us to come on. It's all those things. You have to be lucky. And and the custodians early on, you know, got behind us and backed us. And, you know, my friends over at InvestNet, you know, early on uh, when we didn't have any assets, you know, willing to, uh, you know, believe that we would and, and buy into the vision. And uh, I mean, it, it's just, it's, like I said, it's been an incredible uh, journey. It's been a lot of work. But there definitely were those those low points where the last thing I'll say on this, and I say this to a lot of entrepreneurs starting a new business, get yourself a buddy, right? Because when those times are really tough, having my buddy, Ed Swenson, having my co-founder, you know Marianne, my wife who's just incredible, lift me up and make sure that I don't stay in a low point for for too long is, is, is critical when you're trying to do something that's a heavy lift in, in life. Uh, That support mechanism around you is a big, big deal.
1: So, as you look back, what do you what do you know now that you wish you'd known then about? I guess either building the business or the advisor marketplace you're serving.
2: I think in hindsight, I could have been. uh, We could have been more aggressive, and I guess it's easier to say now because, as as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, I talked about advisors being levered to the business. I mean, I'm. 110% 110% levered to dynasty I'm I'm long dynasty stock and you know while while it you know it's it's done well for our our investors and I think it you know and this gets back to the RPN conversation we had earlier I've had several of our clients come and say I feel like I'm a better leader now that I've done you know th- this small liquidity event because I have some breathing room I feel like I can more comfortably take a little more risk right and and I tell look Maybe you can risk a, a finger or a toe. You should never risk an arm, and, and certainly never risk your head. Uh, but when you have a little more capital over time put away, you've taken a few chips off the table. I think uh, I think ultimately, uh, you know, it, it changes your perspective uh, sometimes in a in, in a positive way. And I'm still very very levered uh, to, to to dynasty. But knowing what I know now, I could have been more aggressive. We could have been adding more advisors uh, quicker. Than, than what we did, we we probably you know we're out on the MA trail now, Michael. We're looking at opportunities at the holdco to buy our supply chain. Uh, so you know whether it's technology service providers or other service providers that can broaden what we provide. Uh, you know we're large enough now that we can buy some of those firms and control the experience. Uh, there's probably opportunities that we missed uh, over the last couple of years because we're just too conservative. Not willing to risk the capital or our position, and we've missed a few things. But you know, you you, you learn from that. Uh, but overall, uh, I probably wouldn't trade in what we do and where we are in the REA ecosystem. I wouldn't trade, you know, our brand, our balance sheet, our client roster, our team. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade where we are with with anyone right now.
1: So you alluded a little to you know potentially going out on the M and A path and kind of buying some of your own service or tech providers and, and integrating more vertically. But beyond that, like what comes next for Dynasty? I mean, what else are are you looking at as the next stage or stages of the business here?
2: I think there's uh, – so, so there's that element. Uh, there's, you know, deploying more capital uh, to help fuel the the growth of, of, of our firms. I also think – and more and more of our clients have been asking us uh, for this – now we're getting a, of scale, uh, there's probably an opportunity uh, for us to drive, yeah, I guess what I would call ingredient marketing. And there are some great examples, I guess NutraSuite's an example, Intel, as I mentioned earlier, maybe even a better example, but where an end consumer is making a purchasing decision based upon one of the ingredients. So uh, as you know, we can lean forward and, and you know, right now, a lot of the confusion when you sit with uh, clients is is while they might get the benefits of working with independent advisor, they say, okay, great. How do I pick between all the independent advisors? Uh, and I think that Dynasty is in a unique position to ultimately become the good housekeeper seal of approval for independent advice. Right. So to help educate the consumer on why they want to get advice separate from pro- product manufacturing. But then, when I'm looking for one of those independent advisors, look for one that's powered by Dynasty because they have great technology and X capital, and they're well run and they're clean, compliant, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they you know have a scale deliverable. So, our marketing team, you know, we're, we're doing some work, and and what that does then is it fuels clients, and we've started to have this happen where clients are now coming in through our website uh, and reaching out and saying, "Can you introduce us?" To one of, one of your advisors, and so you'll see us do more in the mainstream media, uh, really being advocates for independence. I I almost think about it, Michael. You think about the great job that the dairy industry did with Got milk. I think you know us going out and helping to to lead kind of a why independence uh, type movement and 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 driving more consumers uh, this way. And, and 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 as that happens, I think you know dynasty and the dynasty uh, rea boats, if you will those waters should rise hopefully in a slightly disproportionate beneficial way uh, because of their affiliation with us.
1: Interesting. So just as, you know, the Intel inside sells a lot of computers because Intel is inside, you know, what can, what can powered by dynasty do to our independent advisors who are powered by dynasty?
2: You nailed it. Absolutely.
1: So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, you know, one of the themes that always comes up is just literally that word success. Often means different things to different people. Uh, sometimes different things to us in uh, changing stages of our own lives. So you you built what I think anyone would objectively call a very successful business, you know, s- scaling up to seventy employees and tens of billions of dollars on the platform. But I, I'm wondering, just for you at a personal level now, how do you define success for yourself?
2: That's a that's a great question. Uh, I'll be honest; it's not something that I that I spend a lot of time thinking about. I guess I would say I'm probably. You know, today is the happiest day of my life, and I expect tomorrow uh, to be even better than today. I mean, it. Other than you know, I think about my grandfather, uh, who's actually my step-granddad, and the sacrifices that he made in in raising me. I You know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the past. I, I I'm head over heels and, in love with my wife. Uh, blessed uh, that she's in my life. I have two gorgeous uh, smart young ladies, daughters that are just amazing uh, this business and the partners and the clients that, that we have here. In terms of a, a dollar and, and cents you know when you're younger you think oh someday if I can have a net worth of, of, of some number, uh, I've blown past that <laughs> candidly. So now for me I, I look at the cap table and I don't look at myself. Uh, I look at uh, all of the people who believed in, uh, in this vision, and they've taken what started out as kind of my why and 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 vision, and they've evolved it in, in many better ways to make it, you know, their why and their business and where they want to go. And the result of it is, you know, we've you know, we've created on our cap table quite a number of millionaires, and I'm incredibly proud of that. I look at you know what we're doing with our our clients and the impact on their lives and 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 the, the end client. And you know, I'm a I'm a huge believer that. Success is best when shared, and you know if I have a house up in Maine, in my hometown of Eastport, uh, we go you know going up for the Fourth of July this year, we'll take sixty or seventy people with us. Uh, it's it's a huge group of family and friends. Or when we go you know to uh, to, to other trips, uh, you know we're we're blessed to, to to have the the friends that we have. I own thoroughbred racehorses, you know. You come to Saratoga Springs, which you know my hometown now for a race, you know, it's not unusual for us to have a hundred people with us, you know, to watch one of our, our horses run. So I think I guess, you know, a great question. I would say that 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 I would measure my level of success based upon hopefully the the lives that 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 my wife and I have touched in a positive way, uh, with the charities we're involved in, with the business that we built, the jobs we're creating, the clients, et cetera, not so much in terms of of dollar and cents. And and I look. I'm 42 years old. I'm just getting started. I mean, I I think there's a much bigger uh, dent uh, that we can make, kind of in the in the industry, uh, if 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 you will, to drive positive change. There's a lot more that I want to do more broadly as a leader in our country, to help drive financial wellness in the country. I think in some ways my journey from being homeless to buying a $13 suit at the Salvation Army riding a bus for eighteen hours to New York City, knocking on a, a door and getting hired and, you know, building, you know, the life that I built uh here and in, in this company. Uh I hope that that people, you know, listening to this will hear and, and say, you know what, I can do it. If if if, if a hick from the sticks of Maine <laughs> uh can can come can can come down and you know create, you know, that type of business, then then I can do it. So I hope more people get get inspired and and I'm looking forward to kind of the next chapters of, of my life Michael and and giving back and, and and helping to to influence and encourage other people to to have the same type of incredible opportunities that that I've had to to build a, a career in, in the industry that you and I frankly are, are blessed to be a part of
1: well amen i I love it and 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 still the forward focus of how much time there still is left and all the things that you're still just getting started on. I love it. I, I can't wait to see what's next and what you dive into next.
2: I appreciate it. And that that feeling is 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 mutual. I can't wait to see what, what you do next as well, my friend.
1: Well thank you. Yeah I'm I'm um well you you graduated you're ahead of me so I'm I'm only a year behind you at forty one. <laughs> so I uh yeah. I got I got a little I got a little gas in the tank left as well. We're we're not quite done. There's there's a little more left. But thank you, Cheryl, so much for joining us on the on the Financial Advisor Success podcast.
2: Thank you Michael. I've really I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
0: Want even more ideas, tools and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View at com